this morning, if you've got a Bible, turn with you to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2 is where we're going to spend the bulk of our time this morning. We've, over the last several weeks, we've been in this series leading up toward Christmas entitled, He Is. And we've been trying to cut through some of what we've called the sentiment that surrounds Christmas as we think back toward Jesus' first arrival and look forward toward his second in this season of Advent. And so we've been looking out of Isaiah chapter 9, looking at the designations that are given to the son who would be given, the child who would be born. So far we've seen two of those designations in that text. This week we'll see a third, and we'll actually see the third of the designations given by Isaiah to Jesus in Isaiah 9.6. In Isaiah 9, 6, where he writes to, that there, unto us will be a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And this morning we want to drill down into that third designation there in Isaiah 9, 6, when Jesus says, or Isaiah says Jesus will be called the Everlasting Father. Now the New Testament teaches us something about Jesus and his relationship to the Father. And in multiple places we see a couple of things. The first one is this, is that Jesus is one with the Father. And the second is this, is that Jesus reveals the Father. So he's one with and he reveals the Father. In John chapter 10, when some of the Jewish religious leaders are surrounding Jesus and they're pressing on him and they're kind of pushing him to give them an answer to whether or not he is indeed the Christ. And they push him and push him and push him. And Jesus, they said, will you just tell us plainly? Go ahead and use plain words to us. We've seen the works that you've done. We've heard some of the veiled references that you've made. But will you just go ahead and speak to us plainly? And in John chapter 10, Jesus responds to their questioning like this in verse 25. I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. You do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. And they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. And then in verse 30, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Jesus says that he is indeed one with the Father. So even though there was never a time in which the Father was the Son or the Son was the Father, they have eternally been Father and Son, Jesus says that we are one, that we are one in essence, that we share the same character, the same nature, that we act the same way, the same compassion, the same justice, the same righteousness, the same mercy. I and the Father are one. There is a unity between the Father and the Son, Jesus says. But also in John's gospel, in chapter 14, when one of his disciples presses Jesus, and Philip says to him in John 14, verse 8, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. In other words, Philip says, Jesus, would you just show us, would you just kind of peel our eyes back and allow us to see the Father? It would be really cool, Jesus, if you could just kind of call him down on a cloud so we could kind of see him. That would be this kind of really cool, miraculous thing that you could do for that we could see the Father. And Jesus responds to Philip's uh, 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 petition by saying in verse 9 have you been with me so long and still do not know me Philip whoever has seen me he says has seen the father so Jesus is one with the father but he also reveals the father 
So, so that if we've seen Jesus, Jesus says, then you've seen the Father. If you know what I'm like, Jesus says, then you know what the Father is like. Because Jesus reveals the Father to us. So the New Testament teaches us that Jesus is one with the Father and that he reveals the Father to us. Now, there's a, there, there's a big difference before we jump into 1 John chapter 2, there's a big difference between, right, knowing that God is a father and knowing God as your father. There's a massive difference. See, if you know God is a father, then you may be a generally religious kind of person who has a category in your mind for the fatherhood of God. You've maybe been to services before in which you've heard God talked about as a father. Maybe you've read parts of scripture before where you've seen God spoken of as a father. Maybe you've been in Sunday school classes as a kid and you had the little flannel graph thing that you know Jesus moved across the, 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 the bulletin board and talked about God being his father. Maybe generally, religiously speaking, you have a category in your mind for the fatherhood of God. And you understand that God is a father. But there's a big difference between understanding that God is a father and having a category for that in your head and knowing God as your father. As your father. And it's more than the difference between one word, between I and A, right? Between is and as. It's more than just English grammar. It's the difference between enjoying God forever in his presence and eternally being separated from him in sadness and sorrow. Because there's all kinds of people who have a category in their mind for the fatherhood of God who have never personally experienced the compassion of God the Father. And what I want us to do this morning is to see that difference and help, us, help you know, help us know, whether or not you've ever moved from is to as. Whether or not you've ever moved from having a category in your mind about the fatherhood of God to knowing God as your father and tasting of his compassion for yourself. And that brings us to 1 John chapter 2, verses 28 through 3. I'm going to read it for you. If you don't have a copy, it'll be on the screen for you as we read together. John writes these words in 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 28. Where he says, and now little children, abide in him. So that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. That we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what will be has not yet, what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Now, the Gospel of John in the New Testament, is written, John says, so that you might know how to have eternal life. So that you might know how to have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. That you might know God as your Father and Jesus as your Savior. 
So it's written to bring people to faith in Jesus. But this epistle of John at the end of the New Testament is written for a different purpose. It's written not to bring people to faith in Jesus, but it's written to show people whether or not they actually have faith in Jesus. It's written to give some benchmarks of whether or not real, active, vital faith is present in your life. Not to show you how to be saved, but to show you if you have been saved. To give you some assurances and some benchmarks to measure your life up against. To say, is, am I indeed one who knows God as his or her father, not just knows that there is a God who is a father? And so when we look at this text this morning, it gives us some really clear benchmarks to know whether or not we've moved from is to as. And there's only two of them. Some of you are getting really excited right now. There's only two of them. All right? And so that's what we're going to press ourselves into this morning. These two benchmarks to know whether or not you've moved from is to as in a relationship with God. Is he your father? Do you know him as your father or do you have a category for him as being a father in your mind? And the first benchmark that John gives us here in this text is this. is that those who have moved from is to as, they rejoice in the love of the Father. They rejoice in his love. Look, in chapter 3, verse 1, let me show you this to, you, to, this, this to you in the text. In chapter 3, verse 1, John is coming off the heels of chapter 2, verse 29, where he's reflecting on what it means to be born of God. What it means to be born of him, to be his child, to be born again. And in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. And that word see there in the text, when we use that word see in our, our everyday conversation, we're typically referring to our visual faculties, right? The things that you can see with your eyes. But that's not the way that John is using that word there in the text. He's using it to refer to, to, to this experience that you have. This encounter that you have with God. When he says see what kind of love, he's saying perceive, know the love the Father has for us. In other words, what he's saying to us is this. is He's saying you have got to see, you've got to taste, you've got to experience this love for yourself. That's what John is saying in John chapter 3 verse 1. As he thinks about being a child of God, he's saying you've got to see it and taste it and experience it and know it and perceive it for yourself. It's the difference between seeing a picture of a sunrise. Uh, Anybody seen a picture of a sunrise? Okay, all of you are lying at this point because most of us have seen a picture of a sunrise somewhere. It's the difference between seeing a picture of a sunrise and sitting on a log alongside a mountain stream in the heart of the Rocky Mountains in Colorado as the sun begins to peek over the horizon and it rises up above the mountain peaks and begins to shimmer off of that stream as it flows downhill. And as you sit there on that log and it is so cold that your breath makes smoke whenever you breathe, as the sun rises over the horizon. There's a difference between seeing a picture of that and sitting on that log and experiencing it for yourself. You with me? There's a big difference, and that's what John's trying to get at here. That it's not just about having this category in your mind, but a taste of it, an experience of it for yourself. So when he says see, that's what he's driving at there. There's a big difference between those who know God is a father and those who know God as their father because those who know God as their father, 
they've seen that sunrise for themselves. They tasted of his love on their own hearts. Now, what I find intriguing here is that John's not getting new information. Right, because if you go back into John's gospel in John chapter 3, he talks to Nicodemus and he says, Nicodemus, if you want to know God, you must be born again. So you've got to be a child of God. You've got to be born of God. That was already something that was laid out in John's mind based on Jesus' teaching. In addition, in John chapter 3, right, the sign we all see held up at the back of the end zone in football games, no matter what you're where you're coming from this morning, you've, surely you've seen John 3.16 plastered somewhere. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. So the love of God in John's mind and being born of God in John's mind, they're not new ideas here. He's not getting new information. But what, what is going on for John is that information that he had already is becoming new for him as he thinks about it. It's becoming new in his mind. So that what he already knows to be true is beginning to erupt in his heart as he thinks about the love of God, as he thinks about what it means to be a child of God. It's like, it's like, it's like, it's like me with my own children. Right? There have been occasions where um, from the time that they were born and the, they came out of my wife's womb and I was the first one to hold them outside of the doctor because I didn't want that on me. Right? So the doctor takes them out and I cut the cord and they put them in my arms and I look down into their eyes and immediately there's this experience of love that wells up in my heart for this, this son of mine or this daughter of mine. And as they grow and develop over the course of years when they move from just eating, sleeping, and pooping into that stage where begin to now sit up on their own and they begin to crawl and then eventually they begin to walk and as you walk alongside of them holding their hands some of you are there right now some of you remember those years when you walked alongside of your child holding their hand in the park back when they used to still want to hold your hand in the park right so you're walking alongside of them and there's there are moments and occasions where you just stop and you pick your child up and you look into their eyes and you hold your, wrap your arms around their little rib cage and you whisper in their ear, I love you. And you can feel almost their heart leap in their chest. Because all they, though they've known that you've loved them from the time that they were born. Right? If you're a good parent anyway, right? A good father who like took care of them and fed them and at times, yes, changed them. And wipe that dirty bottom off and put a new fresh diaper on and fed them and provided for them and clothed them and protected them. You did all those things. So there was communication of love all along the way. But there are some moments, and I can still see it sometimes in my kids' eyes. I've got teenagers, right? All hope is lost for a while because now they're just like, whatever. I know you love me. Right, but I can still see it in my kids' eyes at times when I look into their eyes and say, I love you. And they kind of get that smile on their face. Sometimes a little uncomfortable smirk because their heart is beginning to erupt in their chest. They're not getting new information, but that information that they had is becoming new. That's what's going on with John here. It's like, a, it's like a volcano, right? And at, at the bottom of that volcano, there's consistently this molten hot magma that's bubbling 
But every once in a while when the pressure builds and the steam begins to rise and that magma begins to rise to the surface and it begins to boil over the rim of that volcano and run down, there's an eruption on occasions. And that's what's going on for John. When he says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. It's not new information, but the information is becoming new. And one of the ways that you know that if you've moved from is to as, is that you've had these kinds of encounters with God as your Father. Well, there's always a benchmark of an understanding of his love for you in your life, but there are certain occasions and there are certain moments where that begins to boil over the rim of your life. And listen, I'm not just talking to the women in the room here this morning. Some of us men, we think, man, you, you wouldn't know an emotion if it showed up on your doorstep this afternoon. Because you're, you're just very hardened at times by life. You don't want to let that soft underbelly of your soul, you don't let anybody see that. But I'm not just talking to women, I'm talking to men. And I'm not just talking to the sensitive men who are in touch with their emotions. I'm talking to all men in the room this morning. It may be expressed differently in your life. You may not curl up on the floor in the fetal position, suck your thumb and cry. But there are times in which you get a sense of God's love on your heart that is overwhelming. And you look around to the people who are closest to you and you say, you've got to see this. You've got to see this. Have you ever had that kind of encounter with God? It may not happen every day, it may not happen every week, it may not happen every month, and it may not happen every year, but there are occasions in your life where the volcano erupts and you rejoice in the love of the Father. And let me, let me, let me press this just a little bit further this morning. A little bit further to show you kind of how this, you go, man, that's great. What does it mean for me? Two things it means for you. And the first one is this, is that if you, when you come to see the love of the Father like this and you experience it and you taste it for yourself, it changes two things about you. It changes, first of all, how you relate to God. It changes how you relate to God. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, John says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. John says, if we confess, God forgives. And whenever you rejoice in the love of the Father and you see it so vividly at times and have those experiences in which you taste it and it's so palpable, you can feel it in your life. That it changes how you relate to God because he, here's why. Because you're no longer coming to God to confess your sins to a judge. Listen, some of you have brought your sins before God all of your lives as if you're coming before a judge who stands with a gavel ready to condemn you. And so you come with evidence and you come with excuses 
and you come with proofs, and you come with half-truths, and you come with this, try to come with deception, but God sees through all of that anyway. But what, what changes in your life whenever you rejoice in the love of the Father is that you no longer have to come and argue and plead your case before God, but now you come before Him, and you get on your knees, and you say, Father, forgive me. And you can be as honest and as real and as authentic and as transparent as you've ever been. And some of you would be uncomfortable to be right now with God. You can come to him not as a condemning judge but as a reconciling father. One Puritan author, Thomas Boston, he said it this way. He said, believers ought not to mourn over or confess their iniquities in a legal manner, viewing them as committed by persons under the covenant of works. But they ought to confess and mourn over them as sins done against a reconciled father and breaches of his law as a rule of life. He said, you don't come before God and relate to him as a judge. You relate to him as a father ready to receive you who's standing on the porch looking out across the horizon waiting for those of you who have been lived as prodigals now for five years, 10 years, or 15 years, and you've constantly been running from God because you're afraid of what He's going to say whenever you show back up. In fact, some of you are in here this morning, you think maybe lightning's going to strike the church because you're in a church building for the first time in years. And yet, and yet, if you... When those who have tasted of the love of God, seen it for themselves, they come before him and they say, Daddy, I don't have to argue, plead their case, give evidence or excuses. The second way that it changes you though, not only does it change the way you relate to God, but it also changes the way you relate to yourself. It also changes the way that you relate to yourself or how you see yourself. I was in, in the truck a couple of weeks ago. I was listening to NPR, National Public Radio. That's just how I roll these days. Um, and so I got in the truck, turned the key on. I, caught, I picked up in the middle of this interview with a gentleman by the name of Trevor Noah. Trevor Noah uh, was, uh, is a biracial man who was born in South Africa during the years of apartheid, where there was separation of races. And in fact, the, the time in which he was born at that time, interracial relations were illegal and punishable by prison time. So he was born in his day. He was born uh, to a black mother with a white father in South Africa during that time in which that relationship could have cost either one of them prison time. And as he shares the experiences of his childhood and his early adolescence and then moving into his adult years... I was riveted by this conversation so much so that I went back and jumped online and listened to the entire interview that he gives because he talks about how the experience of being chosen by your family is foundational to your identity. And listen to what he says. He says, as people, we can try to deny it, but being chosen is probably one of the most wonderful feelings you can experience as a human being. I think a lot of the time, we're all, that's all we're doing. We're going through our lives trying to be chosen. We try to be chosen in a relationship romantically. We try to be chosen in a job vocationally. We try to be chosen in a community with those amongst whom we live and relate. 
He says, and that being chosen gives you a sense of belonging. It makes you feel like you matter. And that's where parents, he says, play a big role because when we are chosen by our parents, that becomes the foundation of how we see ourselves in the world. So for me, I always knew I was chosen by my mom. I knew my dad loved me, but because I lost contact with him for so long, for various reasons, I didn't exactly know if he still chose me. Then to get to a point when you meet a man, after he's reunited with his father, he describes it this way, to get to a point when you meet a man after 10 years and you realize that not only was he still seeing himself as my father, but more importantly was following everything I did in my life. That's a wonderful feeling. A feeling I think and I wish everyone would have. And that is to know that you mean something to someone who is in essence one half of what you are. When he speaks of that idea of being chosen and that being foundational to our identity and how we see ourselves in this world. Because our identity oftentimes produces a sense of security for us, doesn't it? When you know who you are, then there is a security that flows downstream from that identity. And he says, our common human experience is to spend our lives trying to be chosen. I can remember it in kickball in third grade. I want to be chosen for the team. I want to be chosen as most likely to succeed. I want to be chosen in all these experiences and relationships that I have. He said, but most fundamentally, I want to be chosen by my parents because that gives me a grounding and an identity that provides security. In Ephesians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul says this. He says that through Jesus Christ, we have been adopted by God the Father. That because of Jesus, we've been brought into God's family, been made one of his children. And in essence, being adopted, anybody in this room who's been adopted or you've known someone who has adopted a child, in essence, being adopted is being chosen by a family and brought into that family identity. And out of that identity grows a security. And if our human earthly experiences of being chosen by our family gives us an identity from which flows our security, then how much more so, how much more so does being chosen by God the Father, who has always been a father from everlasting to everlasting, It grants us an identity in Christ from which flows a security so that no matter whether or who chooses you here, you know that he has chosen you and adopted you and brought you into his family. It changes how you relate to God and it changes how you relate to yourself, granting you this security that is unshakable in this world. So this morning, that was point one. (laughs) This morning, point two is going to be a lot shorter, I promise. This morning, have you tasted? Have you experienced? Have you seen 
Not the picture of God as a father, not the category of God being a father, but have you tasted of his fatherly compassion on your own palate for yourself? Through the love that he's lavished upon you in Jesus Christ. Second way that you know that you've moved from is to as is not only do you rejoice in the love of the Father, but you also reflect the likeness of the Father. There's a familial resemblance between you and God the Father. It's one of the ways you know you're his children. Remember a couple of years ago when my son started kindergarten at Stevenson Elementary right here in Wood Creek. I remember walking through the halls of Stevenson not long after he had been there um, and meeting some of his friends and those of his classmates. And um, they, they didn't, they, like he and I were not walking together. And one young girl comes running up to me just out of the middle of, of nowhere. And she, she stands, you know, looking up at me and she goes, are you Caleb's daddy? <laughs> and I said, well, it depends on what Caleb you're talking about. Um, but one of them, yes. Caleb Collins. I said, yes, I'm Caleb's daddy. I said, how did you know? And she said, because he looks just like you. To which I thought, I'm so sorry. That poor child. He's going to struggle all of his life. There was a, there's a familial resemblance. right? Anybody who's ever seen my son, they call him my mini-me. Right? Because he looks like me. Even some of his mannerisms are like mine. You ever notice that with some of your kids sometimes? That you find them picking up on some of your mannerisms and the ways that you word things or the ways that you express things or how you respond in certain situations. You see them responding in similar fashions. Right? There's a familiar resemblance between you and your offspring. And it's no different with God. It's no different with him. If you've come to know God as your father, there is a resemblance, there is a likeness that's impressed upon your life. Listen to what John says in verse 29. He says there's a connection between God being righteous and the righteous behavior of those who have been born of him. Listen to what he says again. He says, if you know that he is righteous, speaking of God, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. He says there's a connection between the righteousness of God and the righteousness of God's children as they practice righteousness because there's a familial resemblance. But notice, he doesn't say that by practicing righteousness you get born of God. He says if you have been born of God, rather you practice righteousness. There's a sequence there. If you turn it around, what you ultimately end up with is legalism. When you keep it the way that John intends, you end up with Christianity. That it's not, if I do all these righteous things, then God is my Father. But if God is my Father then I live in righteousness. You can't turn it around. That's the reason so many people in my generation have walked out on church because they feel like the church has said over and over and over again, if you obey, then God will accept you. But what the gospel says and what Christianity teaches is because God has accepted you in Jesus Christ, now you obey. 
There is a likeness that's pressed into your life in which you begin to look like God. And you begin to resemble Him. If God is righteous, then John says, those whom He fathers, they're aiming at righteousness in their conduct, with their life, with their actions, and their behaviors. But how so? Let's talk about two ways this morning before we close. And the first one is this. What does it look like to reflect the likeness of the Father? The first one is this. It looks like living as a trophy of God's love and grace. You live as a trophy of His love and grace. Over the Thanksgiving holidays, when we went home to visit my family down in South Louisiana, uh, a part of that trip was me cleaning out all of my junk from my parents' attic. I know I'm almost 40 and it was still in there, um, but they were ready to get rid of it. And so I climbed up into the attic and pulled out all my old baseball cards and I pulled out several boxes of just stuff that my mom didn't want to throw away because some of it had sentimental value to her. She thought it may have sentimental value to me. And one of those boxes was filled with trophies and medals and uh, ribbons that I'd won through baseball tournaments and cross-country meets and uh, track district championships, all those things that had been kind of just accumulated over those years she had put in a box and shoved in the attic and as I pulled it out and got it out got it down and I began to you know reminisce on my very short-lived glory days um, looking back through those trophies and those medals and newspaper clippings and all those kinds of things um, my kids were sitting in the middle of the floor as I went through all that stuff and they're like playing paper rock scissors arm wrestling for those trophies and medals right because they had no idea their dad was such a prolific athlete um, that he would win all these trophies and medals and so they're sitting there looking at through all these things and Sarah's like claiming this trophy and Caleb's claiming this medal and these things and so even today my daughter has this league championship baseball trophy from when I was like 12 years old sitting on her dresser in her room at our home right she has no idea it's a cheap piece of plastic that's just golden colored but to her it's a trophy and a representation of what daddy has won the victory daddy gloried in at 12 years of age but listen I want you to know I want you to know that your father, our father, if you know God as your father, one of the things you know is he's won a victory for you. He's won a victory for you. He's won a victory for you that you could not win for yourself. That no matter how many righteous deeds that you tried to pile up before God, they continue to be seen through his lenses as filthy rags. And that he won a victory for you that you could not win for yourself. And what he won for you through the sending of his son, through his perfect life and substitutionary death on your account, what he won for you was salvation. What he won for you was access to God that now you're able to approach him and come boldly before his throne of grace with all of your prayers and petitions. But in another very real way, what he won through the sending of his son, was us. And that through the kindness of God, Paul says in the book of Romans, that God has been leading you and I to repentance. That in a very real way, he won you. He won me. 
through the sending of his son. And so you and I, who have tasted of the love of God in Jesus Christ, know him as our father, then we reflect his likeness by living as a trophy of his love. Not a static one that gets put on a shelf, but an active one that lives the rest of their lives with an aim to honor this God who has rescued them, this God who has saved them, this God who has lavished his love upon them. So that God's grace and his love, listen, listen, God's grace and his love do not become for us an excuse for our perversion, but they become a motive for our purity. They become a motive. They become the engine pushing and propelling us forward toward a life of holiness and righteousness. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. He says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means, Paul says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Paul says, what God has done in Jesus to rescue, redeem, and set you right with him should never be an excuse for living however you want to live, but it should be a motive for bringing your behaviors and your actions under the lordship of Jesus. So let me talk to you practically about how this works out in your life. So whenever you're being tempted to sin, when you're being tempted to sin in a variety of ways, you're being tempted to make a purchase that would overextend yourself, when you're being tempted to sin in a way that you know would pervert the image of God that is inherent within you, you're being tempted to sin in a way that would thumb your nose at God for the way that he's been so gracious to you, you don't look at that sin through the lenses through the lenses of Satan's spectacles, as one Puritan author said, but you look at it through the lens of what it cost Jesus to remove God's wrath on account of it. You look at it through the lens of Jesus. He said, you might look at sins and make, make light of them, but it was not a light thing for Jesus to bear them. So you look at it through his lenses, and you don't, you ever been there? You don't say to yourself, Man, I know it's not a really big deal, and God's going to forgive me. And so I, I just, I want it so badly. So I'm going to pull the trigger on that credit card debt. Swipe. Or I'm going to pull the trigger on that relationship. And I know it's not God honoring. I'm going to say yes to that date when I should say no. God will forgive me. And what happens in those moments is that the, the, the grace of God and the love of God are becoming the excuse for our disobedience as opposed to us sitting in those moments and staring at the grace and the love of God and then being fuel and a motive for our obedience to live as a trophy of his love. But the second thing, and I'll close with this, the second one is this. Not only do you live as a trophy of God's love and grace, but also you love in deed and in truth. You love in deed and in truth. Part of what it looks like to reflect the likeness of God. In 1 John chapter 3, verses 16 and 18, John says this, By this we know love, that he, Jesus, laid his life down for us, 
and we ought to lay our lives down for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. John says love, while it's an abstract virtue that it's hard to like define, like if I asked you to define love today, you'd probably get a little squishy for you, like I'm not sure, but you know love whenever you lay eyes on it, whenever you see it being carried out, don't you? Absolutely. And John says we should love in deeds with our actions, not just with our words, and in truth, not just with the things that we talk about. See, many of us in this time of the year, we gather around in huddles and we talk about how, how we should love those who are around us and how we should move towards them, how we should care for them, how we should demonstrate compassion to them. But John says if that never moves from discussion to deeds, it never moves from talk to truth, and the word truth that John uses there literally means this, it means that which corresponds to reality. And so what he's saying is this, is that your love is demonstrated by how you act and conduct yourself, your, the deeds that you do, the actions that you commit in, the, in space and time, not just with man sitting around a dinner table and saying, man, wouldn't it be great if we did this? Wouldn't it be great if we did this? Wouldn't it be great if we did this? And then those conversations just kind of erode and nothing ever happens. You ever found yourself there? I know I have. But John says that you love, not with word or with talk, but with deeds and in truth, because that's how Jesus has loved us. He laid his life down for us. That's how the Father expressed his love for us through the coming of his Son in space, in time. And he did something for us. And so our love for others is expressed in the exact same way. I was so encouraged earlier this week. I got uh, a picture on Wednesday morning from one of our life groups that had taken an opportunity to go out to a local store and spend some time shopping to bless neighbors in our community this Christmas season. And so they just kind of got together and said, hey, we're going to do this. And they did it. And they went out and they purchased all kinds of toys and blankets and sweatshirts. And um, uh, man, I don't, I wasn't there. I was at a program for my, my, Christ, my child's Christmas program at the local school, but I wasn't there, but I, there, there was just the overflowing of love. We've been able to connect with a family that lives within a, about a 10-minute radius of where we meet right now that we're able to bless this Christmas. That's a part of what it looks like to love indeed in truth Right? That there's, 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 there's rubber that meets the road for us in some of those conversations to reflect the likeness of the Father. How do you know if you've moved from is to as? You know because there's a rejoicing in his love that takes place in your life. And at times, it's an eruption. And it changes how you see God and it changes how you see yourself. And the other way you know if you move from is to as is because there's a likeness of the Father that begins to show itself through your actions, through your conduct, through your behavior so that you live as a trophy of his grace and his love. And you love others well with actions and deeds. Is that you? 
The final thing I'll say is this. Some of you have dismissed everything I've said this morning. Because for you, to think of God as a father is a painful thought. It's a painful thought. Because all you've ever known of a, as a, of a father is the, the dude who abandoned you and your mom. The guy who ran out. The guy who wanted nothing to do with you. And if that's you this morning, what I want you to know is that God has demonstrated his fatherhood by sending his one and only beloved son to scream from the rooftops, I love you and I'm committed to you unto death. This Christmas, my prayer for you is that the fatherhood of God would invade your soul in such a way that it presses out and heals all of those disappointments and sorrows and pain from your past. I want to pray for us to that end this morning. Would you join me? Father, today, we delight in your love. We delight in your grace that you have loved us well through the sending of your son. And if there be individuals in this room this morning, Father, who have never moved from is to as, and maybe the hang up for them is they've heard about this God who is a father and they think that is all well and good for those who have had good experiences with their earthly fathers. But that can't be true for them. Because all they know of a father is a deadbeat dad. And if there are young men and young women in this room this morning, if there are older men and older women in this room this morning for whom that has been their experience, Father, I pray. Father, I I plead with you that you would open their eyes to see the love that you have for them and the commitment that you've shown to them by sending your son in their place for their sin. So that they too might have some magma boiling beneath that would erupt into great praise and adoration for your love. And Father, for those in the room this morning who are weary from life today, maybe they're weary of being at war with you. I pray that your kindness would lead them to repentance. Maybe they're weary from the experiences of these last 12 months. I pray that you remind them that your steadfast love and faithfulness abounds in their life. That you have not forgotten them. And Father, I pray that you would make us as a church. You make us into a people
who are so unshakably secure in our identity that we'd move out to the world, toward the world with love and compassion, reflecting the likeness of the one who has adopted us and made us his child. We pray these things in Jesus' name.